0: Welcome to Big Data Small Talk, where we take the vast and complex world of data and break it down to bit-sized, accessible conversations. Each episode is featured by leaders in the fields of data science, AI, or data engineering, as we explore the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities around data. Grab a cup of coffee, and let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about how to modernize web applications And this is a topic I'm looking very, very forward just to start talking about it, especially with all the speakers we have here, the combination of speakers we have here today, and just pick their minds on how to build applications more efficiently, how to build spending less time, and also how to optimize the many different aspects of it, from the front-end to the back-end, to databases, to DevOps, and all these kinds of things. So it's been a while since we had so many people on the panel. And I'm very excited because everyone is from sort of a different background. So we're able to discuss many different aspects of building software architecture from every single aspect that I've already mentioned. So maybe we can even discuss how AI plays into it. I'm not sure if you guys are very into AI either. But it's very important, I think, because modern applications are building a lot of stuff with AI these days, and I'd like to talk a little bit also about what does it take to build an efficient AI application, how developers can optimize their time, spend time doing the right things, and we'll go over all of this. But first things first, let's start with our introductions here. And I am Sabrina, your usual host for Big Data Small Talk, and this space is brought to you by Shakudo. To tell you guys a little bit about Shakudo, if you don't know us yet, Shakudo is an instant data platform which is built to make working with data more enjoyable. So it removes a lot of the hassle and friction behind working with data, basically streamlining your workflow, making everything look good, easy, fast, and most importantly, cost-efficient. And now I wanna pass it over to the speakers. We have amazing people here today. So make sure you're following every one of them, because. They're constantly sharing valuable tips, insights, and all these amazing interesting tweets that you should probably be familiar and wanting to know more about if you're building web applications. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves just starting by the order on my screen here. We can start with Philippe. How are you doing, Philippe? And thank you for being here with
1: us. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, everyone. Thank you in advance. I'm doing fine. Hope you all you guys are doing very well as well today. And should I start with myself? Sure, go ahead. Okay, well, my name is Felipe, as everyone should note it. Uh, I am a front-end developer. Also, I consider myself a generalized developer because I'm also interested in Other subjects, not only front-end development, but back-end, data, AI, ML models, and things like this. But today I'm here to talk about modern web apps from the point of view of a front-end developer. So I hope that I can do some contributions, some valuable contributions for all of you today. And I believe that's all. If you want to know more, there is some useful links on my profile here on Twitter, or you can just follow me.
0: Yeah, make sure you follow Philippe. He's always posting a lot of valuable stuff on building front-end applications. Honestly, I learn a lot from your tweets, Philippe, all the time. And honestly, from all speakers here, make sure to follow every single one of them because they're really awesome content creators. Thank you. (laughs) Going over to Daniel.
2: Hey Daniel, how are you? Hello. Oh, my microphone is good.
0: It's it's great.
2: Okay. Hello everyone. Thanks for the invite to be here talking a little bit about databases and the backend. I really like these two topics. In Daniel, I work as a developer advocate at B open source database that is based on Cassandra. And well, I like to do live coding on my free time and create content for the for the the Brazilian community. And I hope that I can help you guys with whatever you guys like. And I started this account as one week, two weeks, I guess, to talk about technology, but in the tech community, the global tech community. So that's it. And thank you again.
0: Guys, thank you so much for being here. Daniel, as always, is also doing the challenge 100 days of code on this account. So very interesting to see the concentration behind all the process. Yeah, and we can go over to Charlie. Hey, Charlie, how are you doing?
3: Hey, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'm Charlie Greenman. I'm the founder of Razru, a New York based company. Razru is a code generation tool that puts more emphasis on humans than AI, although we do offer AI as well. And using Razzaroo, you can create enterprise or production-ready deployable components in minutes. So that's who I am, that's my company. And once again, thank you for having me and I'm excited to be here.
0: I love it. And I can't wait to have you speak a little bit more to about Razzaroo architecture as well. Thank you. Charlie is one of the top GitHub contributors you'll ever meet. So make sure you follow him for some serious knowledge on web development as well.
3: <laughs> Hashtag senior devs.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's like super senior dev. <laughs> anyway, going forward to Ciara, Thank you so much for being here. I hope I pronounced it right. How are you doing? Please introduce yourself. Hi. To, to the
4: hi, hi. My name is Ciora. I'm a developer advocate at Off Zero by Okta. I've been in the tech industry for a little over two years now. And I've been in developer relations for hmm, maybe like half that time. So a little over a year. At Off 0 we basically specialize in identity access and security, specifically on a uh, creating login ex- log and logout experiences that are easy to integrate into existing applications or new applications and easy to customize. So that's what I do now. I work as a developer advocate there. I do a lot of work with emerging developers or developers who are trying to get into the industry or just starting their career in the tech industry. And I have a lot of experience and a lot of different things over the past couple years that I've been working professionally. And then even before when I was like learning how to code and stuff, I've got experience with some front-end things with some back-end things with some cloud technologies and things like that. So I kind of consider myself like a jack of all trades of sorts, very much so a generalist. So I enjoy having conversations like these. I'm also a co-host on the Stack Overflow podcast where we talk a lot with company founders who build tools that are supposed to make it easier for us to build applications quickly. So I'm really excited to talk about what goes into building modern web applications. So yeah, that's me.
0: Absolutely, and your blog, it, it shows exactly what you said because it goes over many different aspects of building a web applications. I highly recommend for the people in the audience to check it out. Sierra's blog is amazing, and she's always putting out some amazing content as well. So yeah, unfortunately, Rohit hasn't uh, joined yet, but we'll still wait for him to join. But we can get started right into the questions for the speakers here. So the topic today is about modernizing your app architecture. Basically what it takes to build a modern application these days. And when we say modern, we mean fast, we mean efficient, we mean optimized. So we'll go over update technologies, we'll go over development practices, maybe building on the cloud, talk a little bit about microservices, responsive web design. And, but but starting from the top here, I'd like to know from you guys some key aspects to keep in mind when building an application architecture. What are the requirements you'd look for when preparing for this? How would you tackle them? And is there a preferred method you'd like to approach when building an application from literally zero? So who wants to kick this one off and start answering this first question? Over to Daniel. Daniel? Oh,
2: wait a second. My, mic just.
0: Are you having trouble with your mic? Does any other speaker want to go first? While well, Daniel fixes his yeah, mic. Yeah, I'm
2: back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back.
0: Oh, got it. Go ahead, Daniel.
2: Okay. First things first. I think that you need to have a, a clear vision of what you're going to build, like from the beginning to the end. What's what is the project? and then go for the technologies that you're going to use, or also known as the stack. Because thanks, you can use technology that's going to use a lot of hardware, for, for, for example. And then you're going go, you go for something like Java that, that has a garbage collector, or even PHP, that's probably going to consume a lot of resources from your hardware. So if you build something with that, you're probably going to have some trouble in the future. So get something different like C++ or or even Rust can be something that can bring some benefits to you in the future. And in the first moment when you're planning something, you're mostly trying to bring some MVP to show the the product to an investor, some, some friends or trying to evaluate the uh, the idea and you totally forgot that. If this time that you spend on your projects, I think that brings something to you, something good, probably going to have some technical depth in the future. So the first moment to have a good documentation, choose the right language, the right framework, the right database, the right architecture can be something that you're going to invest a lot of time Doing POCs and so on. Of course, you're building something from from scratch. But if you want to do something that will be there for a long time, it's a long term long term project. You have to keep in mind these these items.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And. I love when you say like choosing the right database, choosing the right front-end framework or back-end framework. It's important to know that there is no exact answer, I'd say in my opinion, to which one should you use. But it's important for you to see what are the application requirements before making that decision. And definitely, there will be one that will be better to use depending on the application requirements. Over to Ciara, please take over the mic.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to discuss a little bit more about how to choose the right stack. I think this is a question I've asked myself a lot when I had ideas for building diff- different applications, especially when I was just getting started out. I still consider that I'm like kind of started out. But anyway, I would say the most important thing is to build with something that you're comfortable with because, of course, different languages and frameworks offer different advantages. But I think that the most important thing is for you to be able to build with as much ease as possible. So I would say if you are a front-end developer who's versed, who's well-versed in JavaScript and JavaScript libraries and frameworks, I wouldn't automatically reach for a different language like Python or something like that. I would stick with the things that you're strongest in because there are always tools out there that can help make other sides of application building easier. So for instance, if you're a person who's more comfortable on, on the front end side of things, there are tons of tools out there that can help you with managing the backend and also managing things like databases and things like that, making those things scalable and easier to work with as your application grows. So I would say like, don't get too, too stuck on trying to find the perfect, perfect stack I think the most important thing is to build with what you're comfortable with and then also to make sure that you spend time fully really planning what you want your application to be, what you want the experience to be like, what you want, what you think users want to get out of the, the application because that's going to help you also decide how you want your application to be architected. So you want to be like well aware of the features you want to provide to users, the type of user you're going to be going after, the experience you want users to have, what, they, what you want them to get out of the application, because all those things are going to impact how your application will be built, and it'll help you kind of figure out how you want, yeah, how you want it to be built. So those are important things to think about, I would say, before you begin building, because you don't want to get started with a half-baked idea. And then later on down the line, realize that there are things with scalability and things like that that you didn't factor in that could impact the whole, like, lifespan of the application.
0: Oh, that's such an important point you brought up, Sora. Danielle, you want to add something here?
2: Yes, just something for beginners. When you start coding something, it's the most the most important thing is to see the that 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 thing working. And when you're you're a junior developer, you don't have to be caring so much about this. Because, well, you're trying to make that happen, make that code run, and do the deploy, and so on. And do your first try as a developer. Being a developer is a bunch of tries, and you will probably going to be learning which one of these projects that you're going to deploy. So don't worry at the beginning, and when you... Start have to the, have the feeling that you're missing something, that your code is not fitting so well. The purpose of the project means that probably you're, you're getting some progress. But at the beginning, make things work and then refactor. I
1: would, like to, I would like to add something, but I don't know how to raise the hand here if there is someone from IT to help me. That would be great. Oh,
0: you just click the hard G right on the bottom right corner.
1: Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I would like to add some points from my point of view. I believe we can also understand that subject as a product matter question. I mean, you can, can try to find your stack, not only your stack, but you know, everything about your stack, your environment, your hosting from a product point of view because the first point you have to do before building something is to know what you are building there is no way to know what kind of stack you should use since you don't know what you are building and I when I looked today for most of products I, I have some impression that people start start without knowing anything about what they want to do So, for me, the first point is you should try to find your product core. I mean, your real core. It's not like this hey, man, my my core is AI. Man, AI is not a core. AI is an entire subject. (laughs) You need a core, you know. What you do and what you want to do really well. What you want to offer to people to do really well. Since you know this, it will be easier to find your stack. Then, I believe you should focus on two key points and oh shit i don't know how to point to count (laughs) actually three key points the first is decoupling you should have a decoupled architecture and you should try the less the less binding possible on your architecture things that should work separately most of possible there is a reason for this it's not just because it's cool The second one is fast replacement, because it's deeper binded to the first point. So the coupon architecture and fast replacement. And the last one is available people. Available people from both sides, from the user sides. There will be users for your product, and there will be developers to build your products with the stack you choose. For example, oh, I want to build some AI product with a rich front end that will be a marketplace focused on open AI that will just only say, I want to buy this. And the product will search for you for the the better price, for example, on an entire internet. Okay, you define your stack. Though, that there are developers on the market that you can afford and that will be build the product for you. That now, why you should focus this on, I mean, the coupling and fast replacement, because there is a law on IT, things will change, products will change, code bases will change, people culture will change, how many times Twitter has changed, how many times Facebook has changed, how many times Google changed its first, its home screen, Its pro, the entire product. So, there will be lots of refactoring. So just to, how can I say that? do a TLDR here, something like this, just to, to find a, a final point of view. Try to find your stack, focus on what's your core, what you will build. Answer this for yourself first. Then keep in mind that we'll have to do to find users, people to build this for you, and your production will change. Your code base will change. The people culture over over your product will change, and you will have to answer fastly for these points. I believe this will the key points for you to try to find the better stack for you. I will not try to say hey you should use Python because Python is cool. You should use JavaScript. One thing it it, it, it the the most right things here is is that if you need a front end, it's certainly you will need a JavaScript because you know browser is basically nowadays JavaScript for a rich experience, but we can discuss frameworks, we can discuss lots of things, right? and this could end up in a endless discussion. First so all, I believe in most conceptual key points like this, try to find conceptual key points before defining your stack. That it's what I believe it can help.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. There, you can't know the best tool to build something if you don't know what you're building is, and, and mostly the client doesn't care if you're building your application with like the, this top most I, I don't know efficient stack on the market. Like he he just wants a product that's built with React or Node.js. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> The client only cares about the end experience, the the product they're getting. Is it good enough? Does it attend all of their needs? That's what the final user wants and that's what you should optimize for. Completely agree there. Charlie, do you you wanna add anything before we pass it over to the next question or can we just move on?
3: Yeah, I would say just move on. These are all points I would have set myself. So yeah, just move on. I
0: love it, yeah. So yeah, overall, building a modern application requires very careful consideration of many factors. We're talking about front-end here, back-end, scalability, flexibility, cost-efficiency is a huge one. And this next question is about balancing front-end and back-end developments to make sure they're both communicating efficiently and how to think it through from the start, how to, to make this task easier from the start. Right, So the question here is how to balance the front-end and the back-end to ensure that everything is communicating together and efficiently for the long run inside your application. Who wants to go first on this one?
4: I just want to hop on the mic really quickly and say that unfortunately I have to go. I'm so sorry. I would love to continue this conversation because it's really really interesting and it's also something that I find myself having a lot of questions about but I have a doctor's appointment. But it was really nice getting to talk to all of you and speak to all of you. And Sabrina, I really appreciate you inviting me. And I hope that we can do more collaborations like this in the future.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for hopping in, Sarah. I'm for sure, we'll have you over to talk a bit more and share your insights. So thank well, you. Sounds good. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye-bye.
3: Everyone, make sure you follow us here you keep up with more. Hey. Yep. So maybe I'll hop in. With that being said, maybe I'll hop in and answer this one. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so so for the application that we're working on for Azru, so we had to architect, you know, front and back end, and we do make sure that they talk to each other. I'm sure the developers in the room are very familiar with the concept of, and I'm sure everyone here is very familiar with the concept of monorepos, where you can have just one giant code base and you can have your back end and your front end talk to each other. And there are potential benefits there. For instance, where you can have the same TypeScript interface or packages that are shared without having to repackage things. So that is one thing that can make things very efficient. But from a business perspective, that comes with its own complications which is an issue such as siloing concerns and security. So for instance, we have a offshore team that's not based in an area where we have lawyers that can deal with legal X, Y, Z. So even though from an architectural perspective, maybe monorepos make sense, NPM install aside, where honestly sometimes it causes a very large NPM install, so that's some issues. So there are also the, the business requirements side of things. So it's an interesting dynamic. you know. Every team has to sort of decide on its own. What we found is we've created, for us personally, what's worked well for us, is we've created a couple of like poly monorepos, where we have monorepos based on their business requirements. And then we're able to take NPM packages that we have. For instance, we have two open source repos right now for code modifications called Codemorph. And we have another one called a package.json manager, which is our version control. And so we tend to take things that are easily reused across different packages, and we put those into our own either open source, or we have private repos, we just use NPM, or we use GitHub packages. And, and that's it. So I'm sure other people you know, here will have similar comments, or maybe not actually, I have no idea. But uh, yeah, monorepos, nice in theory, from a practical perspective, unfortunately, the tooling in the ecosystem isn't there just yet. So we have a couple of various monorepos, open-source repos, private packages, and we have them all talk to each other.
0: I love how you guys are tackling this issue, Charlie, and it's very nice to, to know a little bit more about, in-depth about razro and what's going on. Does any of you guys, Philippe, and then you want to add something here, or can we move on to the next
1: question? I believe I, I have some, some points to add. I totally agree with, Charlie I I also like Mono not for everything but they are great okay for for first I believe that we should try to balance what is a how can I say a great theory or a great practice practicing in overall and what is our needings because when we try to look for the internet or the marketing or try to, to talk with another developers, they will also have tips on great practice and best practices that you should follow. But we should not understand great practice as laws, but only as some advices for what you are doing. So you try to put things in context. For example, you read a book that says that repetition is bad repeating code is bad. If you repeat code, you suck. You, you are a bad developer. You shouldn't be here. And you say, man, but I'm repeating code. And then you start not repeating code on your app in the morning. Instantly, everything is a mess and very hard to, to maintain, even harder than before. And that's because repetition is better than a bad, exp- a bad ab- abstraction, for example. You are abstractly wrong. That is not that repeating is good or bad. It depends on your context. So when we are talking about things, how, how to balance the front end and the back end, I would like to say take care with all the information that you'll find on the internet. Try to to look for, I don't, I don't know, from a wider pers- perspective, talk to your team, talk to your pairs about what you are doing. Talk to the back end. You know, before starting to do your your task, if there is a back-end or a front-end, or if you're a back-end, talk to the front-end. You know, before you start to do your task, you call your pair, and you say, "Hey man, or, hey, girl, or, you know, no matter who, who will build something with you, talk to that people. Talk what you are doing, what the possible problems you could have, and try to find a better way together, try to find great advices on the internet, follow them if it fits for you, don't follow it, it fits well but I, I believe for the balancing between front end and back end, even from the technical perspective, not only a, a soft skill perspective but it's communication you know, and it, it, it's said in the question as well. The pieces are communicating efficiently on the application. But if the developers are not communicating efficiently, the software will not do it also. Okay, so communicate. If you are front-end, communicate to the back-end. If you are back-end, communicate with the front-end. Find the, the way to do what you have to do together.
0: It's funny because we, we see a lot of it depends here, right? So we, we are definitely talking with a lot of senior folks, but <laughs> I absolutely agree that there won't ever, I guess, be a final answer to developing applications. Okay, you should do this this way, and this is the only way it will work, and it's the best way, and if you do it this way, then you're a bad developer, right? So this won't probably happen. The important thing that you should always do is make your code clean, Make it readable, understandable, and make sure that you're making code that can be easily modified by other developers if necessary. Like, don't be that person that are the only one that can do changes to the code base because you're the only one who can read it. Definitely something to to make sure to do
1: per- correct. Don't right? that is Smart code sucks.
0: <laughs> okay, I am sure it doesn't believe, but you're, you're just being modest here. Let's let's go ahead and just talk a little bit about front end for a moment. And basically the front end of the application is the part that users interact with, right? So it's crucial that it feels modern, right? It needs to be responsive, it needs to be user friendly. It's also important to ensure that it's accessible, right? So to be accessible for users with disabilities, for example, to take into account stuff like cross-browser compatibility and performance. We're also seeing some, I guess, preference for single-page applications or SPAs these days. So the user doesn't have to deal with like the reloading process of the application. Everything just happens in one page. And my question here goes specifically into the front-end part and what you think makes a modern front-end today. And are there specific tools or practices you'd recommend to challenge, to, to make some of these challenges less hard to, for developers to deal with. Is there a couple of tools that you prefer to use when, ch- when doing this? Oh, see, Rohit arrived. So, anyone wants to answer this one while I bring Rohit on stage?
1: Can I answer that? Go ahead, it's all yours. That's a subject that I could pass my whole day talking about. But I would try to find some key points to to comment. Um, I believe the for the, for the most of modern front-end applications today, SPAs are are also the law. It's everything today, almost everything today, is a single-page application, and that's not because of a hype. That there is a reason for that, and it's. It's about the history of how the front-end has evolved. So, we, on the past, we had three kinds of pages. We have the, the first web, uh, what we can call web 1.0, you know, it's the first version of the internet that was mostly statically content. You open a page, and the page shows you content, and that's all. Mostly text, some some images, not too much images because we didn't have a strong band or strong internet enough to load pages. So before that, we had, we introduced JavaScript on the internet, and then everything was cursed. <laughs> that's why we are here today. Brandon and I introduced it, introduced the JavaScript because we were needing just a little of richer experience. We are needing some dy- dynamic things, but everything kind of, we kind of lost control when we, we entered it, and that's where we are today. On the internet 3.0 that let's talk like this. It's when all the front ends that started as static pages then were with a little experience richer experience, not our real applications. front end it's not just pages anymore. When I start to talk to people, we call it, it page we call it, it website. It, they, we have a sense of simplicity. You know, you know, okay, I'm just going to do a web page. I'm just going to do a website. And that, that brings a sense of simplicity, but that's not so simple anymore. We are building real applications, sometimes so so difficult, so compl- with a level of complexity like a desktop application also. So on the front-end web application, the SPA comes on this context. Because we were using some tools and some things from the past to, do, to build the future. In and that, in that, this is hard. It's hard to use old tools to build the future. So we started to do things as we can. JavaScript didn't change too much. Even with ES, ES6, even with Node, JavaScript itself didn't change too much. Browsers didn't change too much. And that's why we have SPAs. What is an SPA? It's basically when your page loads a single bundle, and this single bundle will orchestrate the entire front end, front end for you. And this is what I believe it's a modern front end, front end today. But that's kind of mess, and that's kind of sucks. In some points, for example, SEO, you will start to have some... Time to first byte, increase it, so your page will have, you will increase in time of loading to the page and something like this. I believe most of the people that are here today should, if and didn't do this, should read about SPAs carefully. What's a single page application and how it works. So now we are trying to conciliate things. You know, we are trying to find a middle point between what it's in MPA, it's a multi-page application that how we were doing pages on the past, and an SPA, how we are doing pages now because we created new problems for us. What I believe it's some, what makes some modern front-ends today, now going strictly to the question on this context, I believe it's the application that can work with the most optimized version. Being an SPA or MPA and giving the user a great experience with a great accessibility. So, to do that, we have to use some tools. I would like to communicate the ones I, I like to use, even for front enders, things I believe you guys should study. The first one is, again, study how an SPA works. There is new frameworks, boring today. The People are raising new frameworks. We are starting to use some new tools as Remix, for example, that try to reimagine how would be a great frontend for today, but it's still under the hood SPA. So, study how an SPA works. Then, study micro-frontends. That's because, since I said we have applications on frontend that are so complicated as a desktop application or in or any other applications Front end applications can grow in hugely man they can be huge it can, can we can have lots of modules pages a lot of things what we can have wasmi We can have some complicated modules trying to be downloaded to the the browser, like a client-side FFmpeg or things, real complicated things. Things about, for example, Miro or about your Spotify running on a web browser. That's a lot of effort in technology to make the things run. And if everything is running together, everything will break together. That's a problem. Imagine that you are, that's why also people don't understand some, some key points of JavaScript. JavaScript can't just, you know, raise an error and break the entire application. So what we do to avoid this kind of things? How we avoid a huge application breaking because of a silly error on the production. We break the application in the minor, minor parts. Parts How? Doing micro ends. How I can do micro ends. There is a great article by Martin Fowler. You can type on Google. Martin Fowler micro He will show you everything about how micro end works and how you should or how you could do it yourself and a micro architecture. You can use React. You can use Vue. You can use some frameworks for micro ends, You can use purely a webpack to build one. But read about micro ends. That's a key point about Modern frontend perspective, and for the last one, read, read a lot, read a lot, read about SCSS versus CSS and JS. Read a lot about wasmi that is going. Read about why new frameworks are upcoming. Then you will see why modern front, not only what, but why modern front frontend is as is what it is today. Okay, so just trying to. Again, to, <laughs> I, I talk about a lot about this. And as I said, I really like to talk about this. But, <laughs> but just to, to bring some key points, just to stop, is study SPAs, single-page applications, Study micro frontends. study. This will show you how also modern frameworks work. I also try to understand why we use React. React is a single-page application first framework, it builds a single page, single page application. When you bring React reactive halter or view halter to your application or any other halter, you are saying, hey, I have a single application on my front end and I, might, and I am routing everything here. And for the last point, again, communicate this for your team, for your parents. Communicate this for your back end, you know, of, to avoid conceptual problems on modern front end. Like having to discuss course with your backing, Communicate. That's all.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Philippe. This was a huge load of information for sure. I was taking my notes here, honestly, to look up Tali stuff later because I am quite of a end student myself. Hope you guys are taking your, your notes as well. And yeah, so anyone wants to add anything to what Philippe said here, it might be hard because he covered a lot of aspects, but if not, we can just move forward. Does anyone want to add something? All right. Moving forward, so we talked about front end. Philippe shared some amazing insights, but I'd also like to talk about backend for a second. For now, more specifically, the data aspect of it. So databases are the heart of any modern application architecture. I like to play around and say everything is front-end if you try hard enough, but I'm just joking around. Databases are so important (laughs) if you're building a modern application. And I'd say it's crucial to choose the right database technology for the specific needs of the application because Of course, there will be applications who need to focus on scalability, others that needs to focus on the performance. It's kind of very different aspects to to keep in mind. I'm not a database expert, that's why we have all these amazing people here to talk about it. And my question is how to choose the right database technology for a given application architecture. What factors do you consider when designing the database schema and queries, how to ensure performance, and all these kinds of stuff to make sure your application, your database meets the requirements of the application you're building. Danielle, over to
2: you. Okay. First thing is, it's good to remember that there's a whole new world after you discover that there's a few paradigms about not only programming languages, but also about databases. And they're not only relational and non-relational, there's... A few categories inside the relational databases that you can choose wisely. And the beauty about databases is that you can use a multi paradigm database to solve your problems. So you don't have to be attached to only one. You can choose, like, MySQL for one, ScyllaDB for another, maybe Mongo for one more project. And you can, you actually need to know what your application. What is the needs of your, your applications? About how to design data, it depends on, on which database that you're going to use. But on the first moment, is to, it, it's a good thing to understand yeah. the cap if you want something that is going to have consistency, high availability, or partitioning. I just forgot the last one. Anyways, basically, high availability, or if you want something that is going to be scalable for you. And if you want something like SQL that is a capable thing, probably it's it's going to be an application that is not handle so much requests and is going to be something smaller and simpler. You can also bring some, some kinds of, of applications that use SQL, but you're going to spend a lot of money. Or you can choose the right database. You can choose the right database and bring this High availability, choosing the right paradigm. And that's it, I guess.
0: I love it. And Daniel, I know that you've recently started a position in SiloDB, which is a, a high performance, a scalable database, exactly built for receiving a lot of requests, responding efficiently. And definitely, do you want to talk a little bit more about ScyllaDB in particular
2: and the use cases for it? Yes, I can. Uh, one of the things that it's a good thing to talk about that is that Scylla was built on the top of the best practice that CassandraDB had. And Cassandra is also open source. So they got all the, the issues from CassandraDB and all the limitations and then have righted everything using the protocol SQL which is Cassandra query language on that. So it was a really, really good thing because Cassandra was a very expensive database and Scylla, it's a cheaper one delivering much more about availability and how data is stored and a bunch of other cool things that we can we can provide. So I'm still new on this database world. Uh, I started to study this has like five or six months. I was the guy that was focusing in only on backends and so on, trying to learn about clean code and blah, blah, blah. But now, knowing about database, it's something that probably I'm going to focus a lot of effort and allocate a lot of time to study more about. And I also wanted to ask you two guys to study about this and see a few other databases and why they're, they're good and where they should be used and where not. Because there's a whole difference of databases besides MySQL and MongoDB. So give it a shot. And if you try Hila, you can use Hila Cloud for free in a sandbox.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is many different databases for your specific use case. If you need high performance, still is a great option. I've recently learned about DuckDB, which is also a very good option, especially if you're dealing with machine learning, very good performance and very easy to use as well. So those are great options. Does any of the other speakers want to also add something on databases or do we move on to the next question? Just raise your hand if you want to and I'll pass it over. All right, so going over to DevOps. So this is a huge one, and of course, DevOps plays a huge role in developing modern applications. And Rohit just joined us a few minutes ago. Thank you so much, Rohit. I I thought we missed you there for a second. But of course, you're a DevOps specialist. You're always talking about DevOps in your tweets. If you guys like DevOps, make sure to follow Rohit as well. And a modern application architecture must be optimized for DevOps processes. This means using the right tools, using technologies to automate and streamline development, testing, optimize the development process is also very important. And my question for you guys is, how to design an application architecture that is optimized for DevOps processes, such as CICD, continuous integration and deployments? What tools and technologies do you guys recommend for DevOps in modern application architecture. So Rohit, yeah, over to you, you can get started.
5: Yeah, thank you, Sabrina. Like always, it was nice introduction. (laughs) So talking about the more like uh, modern application architecture means various new things, right? Previously, DevOps was not there. I mean, select DevOps was there, but the issues was not like today, right? So, nowadays infrastructure is developing and various people are switching to the new architecture. So, some, some prefer serverless, some prefer microservices, some prefer monolithic. So, if we talk about modern architecture, there is high demand of microservices, right? So, but when it comes to the microservices, then there is various packets sending from one service to another, and there will be security issues, there will be vulnerabilities, and various things happens so that's why new newer tools newer projects were introduced new technologies were introduced like service mesh and how we can like how we can do the application networking so as we say like today's cloud native world when we talk about the devops network application team, so cloud native 2.0 is what it is just a future of the cloud native and where we will be dealing mostly aggressively on the application networking so, when we talk about the application networking, there will be your service meshes, there will be your CNIs, there will be your. So, from layer four to layer seven in your OSM model, right? So, that is what the networking part is. So, dealing with the microservices architecture and different modern architecture is depending on these layers only. So, I think as newer technologies are coming towards now, we need to make more awareness on the same side. Because companies starting with the open source, starting with the old architecture, then they get stuck in the future, right? As the technology introduced and their, their, their applications are facing the problem afterwards. So dealing with the right choice and how to deal with the tenancy and that kind of a things. So that we talk about. So, yeah, I guess that one I wanted to share. So if... Any guys has any doubts so you can also talk about, it. and I guess speakers are there, also others, right? So they can also add the point if I missed anything.
0: Oh yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Rohit. Amazing points you brought there. I also can talk a little bit about how Shikuro plays into things, because a lot of what Shikuro does is to free up a lot of the developments or the DevOps process of working with data specifically. So especially when you're working with large amounts of data or building intense data applications, the DevOps around becomes much more complex. It it escalates in a way that is very hard to manage if you're in a small team or if you don't have a lot of resources to spend on, on cloud services or stuff like that. So what we do is basically abstracting away, that's basically what a data platform does, right? So it abstracts away a lot of the complexity of the DevOps processes of the continuous integrations with other components you'd have to worry about and make sure everything is versions right right everything is functioning in the same environments everyone have access to it and it just fixes everything for you making everything look great integrated and with all the version control necessary so this is a little i think way to explain what do does. It fits well into optimizing DevOps for your team. If you're working with a small team of data scientists, for example, and don't want to worry a lot about DevOps, choosing a data platform might be the way to go for you. Does any of the other speakers want to add anything on the DevOps aspect of building modern application? Or we can move on. Just raise your hand. Okay, the next topic is about cost optimization. So the cost of building and maintaining a modern application is very high for many organizations, right? So balancing the need for performance, scalability, and also cost effectiveness is very important because you can use like all the best tools and all the best cloud services and all that, and then your bill is huge that you could easily fix using some open source tool, for example, or use a way to optimize your cloud usage. And cost optimization techniques such as like serverless architectures, pay per use cloud services, for example, sometimes can help reduce costs without sacrificing performance or scalability. My question here is what are some strategies for optimizing the cost of modern application architecture in your specific field and how do you balance the need for performance scalability with also cost effectiveness? Okay. Go ahead, Daniel.
2: Okay. Uh, well, do a good use of the resources is the, it's the main thing. Maybe like a solution just came to the market by Osmos and people just adopted it. Like Cassandra entered the market before Scylla, but Scylla is way better than Cassandra in, a bunch of different ways and most cheaper but people just don't know much, much more about so trying to figure it out best technologies to be replacing this one that is giving you some hard time is something that you have to keep keep in mind when you're 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 an architect or you're a developer you need to see what is the 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 cost that you have today if you have something that replace and also is efficient as your current your current too
5: yeah one of the point i would also like to add so as we know, like modern architecture has various things, right? Microservices, serviceless, and various things. So, and we, in the DevOps world, we use the Kubernetes and kind of architecture, right? So if we are dealing with the multi-cluster and the things, right? So that time, as you know, like sidecars are there. And when there is sidecars, there are different nodes and different, like, if we are working with one node as per, like, if in multi-cluster, let's take example, when we work, that is like you, if there is a sidecar, there will be extra ports, right? So what happens, it is like it is you, it is you are spending the extra extra amount for your extra proxy, which will be used in your architecture, right? So we need to make solutions like sidecarless versions of it, also we need to change the modern architecture, learn about the EBPF. like EBPF is the technology. Well, like we can solve the use cases around the kernel, we can write the kernel level code, right? So that kind of a things we do. So that will help us to reduce the cost in the, in the devops kind of ops kind of side of the application networking and application architecture. So if you want to reduce the cost optimization, sorry, if you want to reduce the cost, if you want to do the cost optimization, I would highly recommend to focus on the new technologies which are coming in the market. And this, this will be the focus of the next year also. So if you want to learn, learn about the EVPF and learn about the sidecarless versions of what is inside the architecture of the microservices. Hope that has-
0: I love it. Yeah, great points to keep in mind there. Does any of the other speakers, Charlie or Flip, do you guys want to add anything? to optimization. Yeah, Charlie, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I think for this one, just to maybe specify two or three technologies that we found were really helpful, just add maybe some more concrete technologies to what we actually use that we found very helpful. Our server cost actually right now for RASRU is only about like $500 a month, which is really low. And the reason behind that is that we were super conscious of of cost, and we architected things to use serverless always. So we use AWS, so Lambda. And then we also take a large advantage of S3 files whenever we can. So we're reading and writing S3 files, and it's about, I think it's like 0.28 cents for like 25,000 units or something. I'm not sure if I get that price right, but for every read, let's say if you do 28,000 reads of a file, that's like 28 cents. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Just between serverless and and S3 buckets alone on AWS, we've been able to make massive strides with regards to to cost and also just caching on our front end when possible. And and we also do caching and we do we also are right now looking into autonomous solutions. There's something called the Sedai, for instance which does automatic provisioning of, of serverless to make sure they only run with and uses AI and your uptimes to determine when it is that a certain container or whatever needs to be upticked, like the amount of provisioned containers. But yeah, I just wanted to specify like between S3 and, and serverless, we've seen phenomenal cost benefits.
0: Oh, that's some valuable information. And while wow, only 500... 500- dollars per month, that's crazy, Charlie. i uh, go ahead, Philippe, over to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice, also, thanks for all the contributions from Jorge, Charlie, Daniel. My points are, the points I would like to add, it's also about Frontend. And when we are talking cost and optimizing on modern applications, I believe the front Frontend has an important role. And the first one, I would say, if you can do on front-end, do on front-end. Because the client has a processor, you know. In the past, we had weak processors. Not, not not weak, but they were great for their epoch. But for today, our user's computer has eight cores computers, has M1 computers. Of course, we have also people that use some processors that are not as great as the modern processors, but we can count that maybe the front end will be on a strong machine. So if you can do one front end, do the front end, that will relieve the backend and will release your host and your servers. I can bring an example from Twitter. I was navigating on Twitter, some, I believe last year, and I was uploading a video. Then that happened again, and that happened again, and I was just hacking about Twitter, seeing how they upload videos, how they crop videos, and from a client perspective, and I noticed something. When you upload a, how can I say, a lighter video, a small video, Twitter will try to crop and prepare your video entirely on the front end, because this will relieve their servers and they will try to use your machine to process the video and send the video already processed to the backend. So the backend have only to add the the meta meta information they need and store the video, whatever they want, because it's already prepared by your machine. But if the application on the front end Notice that the video is actually bigger, or your application will not be capable to process, the Twitter will send the whole data to the server process. It seems, you know, a little awkward, but if you take into account that Twitter has millions of users, if half of users have a machine capable of processing video, they have half of cost processing videos. That's awesome. Because it's entirely being being made by the q handling machine. The same happens with Middle. The same happens with Figma. All the modern applications that do have have that have to process have amounts of data. They try the the most of possible to do everything on the front end. There is some techniques to do this without harm your user. For example, there is techniques. To identify how many cars your users have on the front end. You don't need a backend for that. You can see what processor they use are using, how many memory is free for a user when your application are using. And another thing you can do: use background tasks on front end, use service workers, workers to process to do have processment of data, to process large amounts of data. And also, how Charlie already said, cache. use cache whenever you can. If you can cache something, cache something. It's turn about fetch, cache. Using uh, if you are using Axios, XAR, request any HTTP request, then you can cache. So that's it's my advice. If you can do on front end, do on front end. If you can delegate to to the backend only what the front end can't do. For security or processor reasons, doesn't.
0: Well, I love this take so much, and this is definitely super valuable advice if you're building end applications out there and want them to be modern. Honestly, I'm kind of shocked with these Twitter the fact that you just shared. So amazing, they're they're thinking there, and just to be mindful of time here, guys, we're going almost 15 minutes over time, and I I just wanna also ask for the speakers for some final tips and some final advice so we can wrap everything up and call it a day. So I guess we can start from Rohit here from the other on my screen. Uh, Rohit, thank you so much for joining. Do you have any final tips you'd like to share from the DevOps aspect or any aspect in general that we discussed today about building modern applications?
5: Yeah, so I would only recommend like what what I have the understanding about the modern application. So think, think twice before what technology and what projects are you are going to use in your modern application architecture. So uh, if it is open source, think like if you have the enterprise support in the future for en- by any company or something. If you are working on things, so where's will be the security, yeah, security. And if in the security, which are the projects which are providing free, free kind of support to do the secure kind of architecture. And if you want to do the paid one also. So which will be the use case and how, who who is the who is the like better better customer for you? And according to them, there are various projects, right? So in current current DevOps space and cloud native space, there are different, different solutions, right? And different solutions are different projects. And according to your use cases, you can manage. So choosing the best project is the most important. And after that, depending on the cost optimization thing, you can slowly go with the flow and you can reduce that things and you can change the things. But at the start, try to, try to focus on things which will be only useful in your use cases and also i would like to add like if you want to get any help around the devops and if you want to learn the devops and if you learn or want to learn the application network or something you can check my recent post and you can you can I mean it's like my entire post my entire twitter profile is just on the devops and application network so if you want to learn Just go. I would not recommend you to go and follow or something. You just have to go and check my previous threads. It will surely help you. And most probably it can help you solve various use cases. So all the best. And thank you. Thank you, Sabrina, for inviting me. Sorry for joining late, guys.
1: Thank you, everyone. Also, thanks for the crowd. Also for listening to us. Thanks, Sabrina, to have invited me. That was awesome. Thank you, Charlie, Daniel and everybody
0: thank you yeah thank you for the valuable insights you both put in thank you Daniel you guys wanna you wanna share something Daniel and Charlie final thoughts
3: I'm just gonna end off with believe in yourself and you can do it I'm gonna end off with on that one
0: amazing Daniel any final ideas thoughts you'd like to give everyone so they can wrap everything up I
2: don't think so I think that was so, I'll explain it and I'd like to thank everyone to be here sharing ideas, with the co hosts, and so on. And that's it.
0: Yeah, I'd also like to thank everyone in the audience for tuning in. I hope you guys took some value out of this conversation. I definitely have, these people are amazing. Thank you so much to the speakers. Every single one of you shared some amazing ideas. I wish we had more time to discuss more, but perhaps we can come over here another time and continue this discussion. So it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, everyone. See you in two weeks for the next Big Data Small Talk. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, bye.